Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. This evening we continue our preaching series entitled Integration. Connecting real faith and real life in the letter of James. Last week, Ethan preached on the beginning of chapter 2 where James addresses the sinful issue of partiality, which Ethan defined as the unjust preference of putting some people above others. And apparently, this sin of partiality has, seems to have cropped up in the congregation that James oversees. And certainly I commend Ethan's sermon to you if you haven't had a chance to hear it, but, but in a nutshell, the, the rich have been afforded places of honor and great deference, while on occasion the poor are treated brusquely and dismissed. And James makes no bones about it. This should not be so among you. This is the way of the world. This is not the way of the kingdom of God. For one... It is not the way of the Lord of glory. And two, James writes, it doesn't make any sense. The rich are the ones in this situation who are oppressing you, who are making life difficult for you, who are throwing you into debtor's prison. So with this background in mind, we continue our journey into the next section of James. And and I've roughly divided this passage that we'll look at tonight into three sections. And I do like the same letter repeatedly, uh, some alliteration. And, and so if you're taking notes, uh, the three sections are accusation, action, and amen. Accusation, action, and amen. So we start with the accusation. In this evening's passage, James just continues his onslaught against the perniciousness of partiality by pointing out that this unjust treatment of people based on the appearance of wealth or how many, much money they have is in fact a violation of what he calls the royal law of love. It's a violation of the royal law of love. He writes, if you really fulfill the royal law of love according to the Scripture, and by the way, we, we hear the summary of the royal law of love read at the beginning of every service. Don read it just a few minutes ago. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it. Join me. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The royal law of love. It's the royal law because it comes from the king himself. It is his way. It is the way he lived his life. Fully devoted to the Father in body, mind, soul, spirit. Living in perfect love of those around Him. Showing no partiality to those who did or didn't have riches. He didn't care whether they had fame or whether they had popularity. But He walked in love and generosity to all who were in need. And James writes, if you are in fact, if you are in fact loving your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. 
And indeed, it is a beautiful thing when brothers and sisters live together in unity and love. Indeed, it is good. But here comes the accusation. And I think James tips his hand as to what he thinks is the reality. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. I think that tips his hand as to what he thinks their, their condition is when they show partiality. Uh, prior to moving here to Grove City for the last 10 years, I've uh, served as the, the headmaster of a school down in Beaufort, South Carolina. And as you can imagine, from time to time in my role as headmaster, I had to deal with disciplinary matters. Uh, you've maybe been in a role where you've had to deal with disciplinary matters, or maybe you've been in the position of having to come before someone because of a disciplinary matter. Um, if you're in the role of, of having to judge these situations, you begin to notice uh, there's only so many ways this is going to shake out, right? I mean, there might be, and it's rare, but you might get the repentant breakdown. I'm sorry, Reverend Lawrence, I shouldn't have done it. Please, please, do you have to tell my mother and my father? Do we have to call them? You get that sometimes. But for every one of those, there are uh, many others that go the other way. Typically start with a denial, and then we move into, I didn't mean it, it was just a joke, was it really that big of a deal? I think James understands human nature really well. And before the excuses can start rolling, it is as if James kind of cuts them off at the knees. He just kind of... Uh, he understands our tendency to downplay those areas where we come up short. And that's why I think he continues, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all of it. He views it, that is to say, the obedience to the law as an all or nothing. There are areas of our life that certainly allow for partial fulfillment. Did you have breakfast? More or less, I had a cup of coffee in a donut hole. All right, you're, you're partially filled. Or, or my least favorite words that I heard when I was growing up, Chad, you cannot go outside until your room is cleaned up. I, I don't ever imagine I fully fulfilled my mother's picture of the clean room. But somehow when she would go up there and she'd see the bed hastily put together, the clothes thrown into the drawers, it was good enough, and I got the word I needed to be out the door as fast as I could. But there are other areas that have clear and distinct dichotomous boundaries. Uh, one of my current least favorite boundaries in all of existence is the out-of-bounds in disc golf. I throw a long shot near a boundary. I approach the disc with a sort of nervous apprehension because I know one of two things is about to happen. A portion of the disc is touching a portion of the inbounds by even the smallest amount. I am happy. I mark my disc and I throw the next one. Or, no portion of the disc is touching inbounds whatsoever. That means a stroke penalty, I lose distance, and sadly I am unhappy. Unhappy. 
and I prepare to pick up the pieces and move on. It is one or the other. In James' view, as he presents here, transgressing the law is one or the other. It's all or nothing. Now, we might not like this. We might like to think of our status before God as some sort of scale. You know, we have the the good things and the the not-so-good things, and we do some not-so-good things, and we'll try to pile up a few more good things that we can kind of begin to tip the scale of God's justice in our favor. Uh, James takes the whole scale off the table. If you've committed one, if you've broken one part, you've, you've, you've broken it all. And he also removes our human tendency that, to highlight the parts of God's law that we like and, and to downplay or dismiss the parts that we don't like. We, we, we don't get to pick and choose what part of the law we like and those we don't. James continues, For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. He writes, if you do commit adultery, or you don't commit adultery but you murder, you're a transgressor of the law. He presents the law of God as, this, as a unified whole, um, a, a unified tapestry. As one commentator put it, um, he sees it as a pane of glass. And this part of the glass might be squeaky and clean, but you take a hammer and gently tarp the other part of the glass and the whole thing shatters. So hence the accusation. And I think the key to understanding this, this unification of the law is, is in a little phrase, and I didn't pick it up till later in my study. That little phrase, he who said you shall not commit adultery, is also he who says you shall not murder, which is to say the way we are to live comes from the one who has given us life, from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to violate any part of how he says we are to live is to offend against a person, against him. Or in the case of the issue James is dealing with in this part of the letter, to haughtily dismiss someone because of their shabby clothes or because you can't, don't think you can get anything good out of them or, or to make all sort of distinctions based on categories in your mind of what is good and, or evil or, or evil thoughts and then proceed to offend the person, it not only offends the person, but it offends the Lord who created, loves, indeed even gave His life for that person. And so hence the accusation. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now the action, part two. What's the action that James calls his readers to? So speak and so act as those who are judged or to be judged under the law of liberty. There is an account that each must give, James reminds us. We say it in the creed that we'll say in a few moments. He shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Which of course flows directly from the scriptures in which we are told it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. Now we know what's going to be on the test. 
We, we don't have to try to go through our notes and determine what the professor is going to ask us. We don't have to judge what the ju- guess what the judge will be looking for. When it comes to our dealings with others, we've heard it summed clearly. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So James writes, speak and act as those who will be judged by that law. And I want to note that the verb that he uses here does not connote a one-and-done type action. It is continuous speaking, a continuous acting. It's not a checked box, but rather a life lived in a certain way that is marked by sacrificial, giving, self-giving love. The way that you would like to be treated and loved is how you are to treat those around you. And all it takes is the parable of the Good Samaritan to remove what we might want to think as the person who lives to the right or our left as our neighbor to realize he is talking about all human beings in, with whom we come into contact. Now, crucially, as an aspect of the law of liberty, a crucial aspect that I think we need to understand if we're to understand that's kind of jump he makes But he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And then he seems to make a switch to this idea of mercy. And he does this because part of the law of liberty, you see, is acting and speaking mercifully to the poor, the needy, the downtrodden, the broken. You cannot come away from reading the Scriptures without realizing that God is a God of mercy. We say it in the prayer, we'll pray at communion. You are the the Lord whose character or property is always to have mercy. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs on your table, but you are the same God whose character is always to have mercy. And always in Scripture, when it talks about God's mercy, it seems that it immediately connects to how His people are to be a people of mercy. To look for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the needy, the alien, the downtrodden, and to bless. I think this is why James writes so quickly, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Which is to say, you are going to face judgment. And at that point, you may just want mercy. But are you showing mercy now? Is your life marked by mercy to those in need, to your neighbor? I think it harkens back to a parable that James' brother Jesus uh, told when Peter came up and asked him, um, Lord, how many times must I forgive a, my brother? And I think Peter kind of really reaches in the far end of his mind and he thinks uh, seven times, that'll be impressive, seven times. And, and Jesus responds, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he goes on to tell this parable of a, a master who is settling accounts with his servants and, and one of the servants owes the master an enormous sum of money. We'll say tens of millions of dollars. 
And he has no means to repay this massive sum of money. And so the master calls him forward and tells the servant, you have no choice. You are to be sold. Your children, your wife, all of your possessions are to be sold. And all profits that uh, that is going to bring can be brought to me as payment. And, And the servant falls down on his face before the master. And he pleads and he says, please have mercy. Be patient with me. Give me time and I'll pay it all back. And the master looks at the servant and he's filled with, with pity. It's, it's this guttural reaction. And he's filled with pity. And he forgives the whole sum of money. And he says, the, the, the slate's clean. Go on. The servant goes out. And in the parable, he immediately encounters another servant who owes him a smaller sum of money, say a couple hundred bucks. The forgiven servant grabs the one who owes him money and begins to throttle him. Pay up, you owe me, pay up. And the servant who owes the money says, no, please, please, I beg you, just let me go. Just uh, give me a little bit of time. Please be patient. Please be patient. I will pay it back. No. No calls the prisoner, calls the, the, the police, has him arrested, thrown into prison until he can pay back every penny. Jesus continues that the, the master hears of these actions. And he calls the first servant before him. And he says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus concludes, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And, And what's the principle at work here? Is it not simply that it is incongruous that a people who have been forgiven so much should be marked with unforgiveness and bitterness? Talk about a break between real life and real faith. Or is it not incongruous that a people who have been shown so much mercy by God should then disregard the poor and those in need of mercy? Again, talk about a severe uh, break between real life and real faith. But the true connection is, is seen in the Beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall see mercy. We now come to our final sentence. Just a little phrase James puts in there. I am sure glad that he did. I've lumped it under the title, Amen. We've heard the accusation. We've seen the call to action. Here's the amen. Mercy triumphs over judgment. To which I am very inclined to say amen. Again, we've heard the accusation. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're showing partiality... You are showing lack of mercy. You are violating the royal law. You have sinned, and you are a transgressor. And my friends, it may be this evening that the conscience 
is accusing you even now. That you realize that you stand condemned as a transgressor before the royal law of God. That you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. And you may find your soul crying out as we cried out after it was, the law was read in the first place, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. The Spirit of God may be so working in you. You may have heard the action, the call to action, speak and act as those who are under the law of liberty. And you may say, all right, I'm committed. I'm going to do it. Yet you may also, while you have the conviction, I'm going to do it, have alongside what the Apostle Paul says. I have the desire to do what is right, but I find another law alongside of it that I do not have the ability to carry it out. How do I do this? And you may be saying, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Indeed, may you know this evening that mercy triumphs over judgment. For in His mercy, the Son of God took on human flesh and He lived the perfect life. My friends, He kept the whole law, never failing in one point for one moment. And even still, He as the judge was willing to be judged in our place. Upon the cross at Calvary, shedding His blood for your transgressions and mine. Giving His life for you and for me. For all of the times when you have shown partiality. Or neglected to show mercy to those you knew were in need. Or when you did not love your neighbor as yourself. He took it all upon the cross. And so justice received its due. But as I said, in His mercy, He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So in His mercy, He sets it upon Himself, what we deserve, and in its place, we are set free. You are forgiven. You are beloved. You will be welcomed to his table and he goes to prepare a place in his kingdom for you forever. There's a prayer in the service of the burial of the dead that's kind of buried in there. I think it's wonderful. It stuck with me. O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we pray thee, set thy passion, thy cross, and thy death between thy judgment and and our souls, now and in the hour of our death. And so he does. He sets his suffering, his death upon the cross, his resurrection between us and the judgment we deserve, and he pours his mercy over us. Mercy triumphs over judgment in your life, in mine, amen. And it is as we recognize this great truth and it penetrates into the deep recesses of our hearts that the Spirit of God makes us into a people of mercy. 
who are empowered by His Spirit to demonstrate love and mercy to a world of harsh judgment. And my, what a difference it makes. It's dunamis. It's, it's power. It's dynamite in the world. Uh, I'm going to land this sermon with, uh, with some trepidation. I want to um, share an illustration that's etched into my memory that I hope conveys what I'm trying to communicate as I close. Some 20 years ago, I was teaching a fifth grade summer school back in California, and I got the dreaded mid-morning knock on my classroom door. I had been teaching long enough instinctively to know what that meant. It meant that another student had enrolled late, and was now being brought into my already crowded and settled-in classroom. I don't know how I knew it, but I just knew it, and when I went to the door, sure enough, there was my principal with another student. I stifled my irritability. I put on the good face. I welcomed the student in. I prepared her desk, and I continued on. I was thoroughly unprepared for what I was about to encounter. In all of my years of teaching, I had never had a student come into my classroom with such anger and just pure disdain. Now, granted, it was summer school, I get it, none of us really wanted to be there, but this was different. This nine-year-old girl within a half an hour had completely decimated every one of my classroom rules. She refused to do any work. She banged books around. She made disparaging comments. And most unsettling, she just stared daggers at me. It was terribly uncomfortable. I tried everything I knew, but after an hour, I had had it. I had been patient. I had given her time to settle in. Now Mr. Lawrence was going to light her up. After all, I couldn't let my student teacher and the other students in the class see her treating our classroom and me with such disrespect in such a fashion. And it was just as I was about to let her have it. Well, it wasn't quite like Achilles grabbed by Athena before he was about to take Agamemnon, but it was, I was stopped short. It was as if the Spirit of God grabbed me right as I was about to light her up. And he spoke into the ear of my heart, Chad, we're going to try something different here. And it was enough that I stopped. I didn't know what that something different was, but I figured I'd better go with it. I looked in the back of the room, and I had a, an office back there. That we, it was a pod, and we shared an office between uh, multiple classrooms. And, and so I just thought, well, um, I'm going to invite her to come back there. So um, I said, uh, young lady, please come join me in the back in the office. And, um, and I made my way back there. I asked my student teacher to take the class as they were working. And, and I started to head back there, and she didn't move. I didn't think she was going to move at all, but eventually she just kind of stood up slammed her chair into her desk and stomped her way all the way back. I sat down and I said, uh, please have a seat. And in what was the understatement of the summer, I, I didn't know what to say. I just said, I, I can see you're not too happy. <laughs> Man, she just stared at me with such fury. And I thought to myself, and 
uh, almost said to the Spirit of God, this is sure backfiring. I mean, the tension was palpable. And then all of a sudden, her irate eyes began to fill with tears. And then the floodgates opened. And she said, my parents are divorcing. We're moving from house to house. And this is my fourth school in less than a month. And I'm just so angry about it all. My eyes began to fill. I looked at her and I said, I am so sorry. I I can't do anything about that. But what I can do is try to make this a place of stability and someone if you need to talk to while you're here. Two different people walked out of that office. Uh, One was a young lady who became (laughs) the absolute delight to teach. She didn't violate another one of my rules (laughs) the rest of the summer. And the other was a grizzled teacher who was filled with gratitude that God had allowed me to show him some measure of mercy. That he had so worked through me that he had allowed mercy to triumph over judgment. My friends, may you know this evening, God's mercy triumphs over judgment in your life. You are forgiven you are loved. Amen. And may he make us a people who are merciful, who having tasted of his mercy, demonstrate and act and speak in his love in a harsh, hard world that desperately needs the mercy of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. They took your life, they could not take your